Olasu. Good morning. End of the cycle. We return to equanimity, but I'd like to backtrack just a little bit, so I'll complete a set. And that is these fourfold analyses of Buddhaghosa. I find just have such wisdom in them and such practical value uh, that I wanted to complete the set. And so I didn't give his fourfold analysis when it comes to empathetic joy. So that which is the false facsimile, or literally the near enemy of authentic empathetic joy, is just kind of taking delight in hedonic pleasure. Just enjoying one's good fortune and looking for other people who also have good fortune and say, isn't, isn't life grand? And they, they said, life is grand. You want to go on my, my yacht you're with this weekend or your yacht? Let's flip. So, and life is grand, and we can all rejoice in that. So, very, very sweet, except for it's a false facsimile. That which is diametrically opposed, one can say, is on the one hand, obviously envy, which is head on collision with taking delight in others' joys, their success and their virtue. But also, envy, envy tends to be kind of directional. It has some target, some person, some group, whatever, the poor versus the rich, and so forth. Or one can just kind of go supernova, and just wind up being cynical with no particular target, just generally sourpuss cynical. And both of those are diametrically opposed. And then that which, how do you say, is the immediate catalyst, the immediate catalyst. You know, frankly, I've forgotten, but I think it's kind of obvious. Attending closely, attending closely to the virtues, the joys of others. And then naturally, if one does so, it becomes real for oneself and then empathetic joy arises. And then the sign of success is that that which is diametrically opposed subsides. So less and less envy, less and less cynicism, greater sense of good cheer. So that's it for empathetic joy. And then we come to equanimity, even-heartedness, even-mindedness. And that which is diametrically opposed, of course, is that from which we are seeking to be free, and that is the attachment and the hostility to those who are near and far. So there it is. Kind of, kind of obvious, but that which is the false facsimile or the near enemy is variously called aloof indifference, stupid indifference. So the mind is even. Welcome back. Good to see you. Uh, the mind is even, but there's no heart. There's no warmth. There's no real genuine caring. One is just kind of generally whatever, kind of that kind of bland, emotional deadness, a withdrawal, a recoil, a kind of dissociation clearly not part of any healthy Dharma practice. The immediate catalyst for equanimity, this is an interesting one, has a lot of power to it, and that is the awareness, the understanding, and the recollection of cause and effect of karma, especially one's own influences, but more generically, just being aware of causality and the causes and conditions coming together, because when attachment and hostility come in, we tend to reify, we tend to have a target something that we're very attached to, and then isolating there as if inherently existent, as if somehow suspended above the network of causality. And likewise, and especially when we get upset, we get angry, and so forth, or a ver strong aversion arises, it tends to congeal around a target. It could be something as vague as a political party. It could be a whole race, a race that one is against, uh, who knows what. It could be an, all kind, even an idea, and then one may reify an idea and then feel hostility and so forth. And so bringing in the awareness of pratitya samvapati, dependent origination, karma, one's own karma, 
and so forth, does tend to have an immediate effect to even out the mind as you just kind of get grounded in equipoise, dealing with reality rather than simply reacting out of either craving or hostility. <coughs> and then the sign, of effect, the sign of success, of course, is that those subside. The craving, the hostility, they subside. And so there we are. We finished the, the fourfold analysis for each of the four. Pretty straightforward, clear. But the, how do you say, the traction, the, the value, the pragmatic value of daily life can be really terrific. These are not just some kind of nice abstract ideas. And overall, we can summarize from this something that I've heard multiple times. You find it, for example, in the seven-point mind training. And that is, when it comes to specific practices like shamatha, okay, now we've got all these nine stages, and then we can worry, oh, why am I not progressing faster? I've been practicing so many years, and I'm only at this stage. Maybe this isn't working. Maybe, maybe it, I know, maybe it's probably not necessary. Let's just skip this and go around it, you know? Or likewise with the four measurables. Oh, I've been practicing those for a long time, but I don't feel all that loving, compassionate, empathetic, or, ah, crap, I'm not doing anything equanimity. You know? And so when then, you know, they're judging here and there, meditation and emptiness. Yeah, but I still feel all the craving and hostility I did before. And so no matter what we're doing, you know, there, there can be individual criteria for, for specific practices. And then we have those, we can use those when we see how little we're progressing, we can beat ourselves over the head with, ah, you didn't live up to my expectation. When you hear that, by the way, when you hear that voice in your mind saying, you didn't live up to my expectation, you're not progressing well enough, you say, well, I may not be, but how are you doing? <laughs> Who's asking? <laughs> you know? Who's asking? Who put you on the high pedestal? Are you enlightened? If so, help me out. If you're not, shut up. <laughs> the self-condemnation really is a dead end. And it's ridiculous, because there's nobody there. You know? So there it is. But in terms of more generally, are we practicing Dharma or not? And if we are practicing Dharma, whether it's Hindu Dharma, Christian, humanist, Buddhist, Theravada, Mahayana, Vajrayana, whatever, one of the just broad, generic criteria of is your practice working or not is as you encounter the vicissitudes of daily life from day to day, year to year, decade to decade, how are you handling the ups and downs? Not how many ups and downs come, because you don't have any control over that. How are you handling, how, how are you responding to the ups and downs, what life throws at you, whether in the solitude of your meditation hut, or your little room, or whether it's your interaction with other people, or the economy, or the environment, and so forth. How are you handling it? And a sign of a spiritually mature person, a sign of a person who's really flourishing in the practice is, as one deepens and progresses and proceeds along the path, that one pain, maintains more and more sense of composure, more sense of equilibrium. Whether people are freaking out because the economy is going down, this, this bad thing, this, this adversity, this adversity, and other people are freaking out and getting angry and getting anxious and fearful and resentful and so forth, the person practicing Dharma says, okay, let's just deal with it. And then when things go well, then people are celebrating, dancing, singing, laughing, ha, 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 isn't it great? Spiritual literature says, good. Let's deal with it. And it's not an emotional blandness. It's a composure. It's moving out of spiritual or psychological, emotional infancy to maturity. That, huh, this is what's happening? Good, let's deal with it. Ah, oh, pleasure arising. That's nice. Oh, displeasure is arising. Ah, oh, that'll pass too. And so this overall composure, sense of collectedness, samadhi, that's the mid-training, so easily, so ridiculously skipped and marginalized, it's kind of like, you know, 
that's the core of dharma that leads to wisdom. But without this, the wisdom is just going to be poking in like a little peekaboo. That's about all. And so there it is. And you recall from the Lerap Lingba's teachings that when it comes to the conclusion of settling the mind its natural state, they said this is one of the benefits. You maintain an ongoing sense of composure, emotional composure. Whatever comes up, you deal with it. Emotions still arise, but you're not caught in their grip. You're sane, you're composed, you're unified. So welcome to Dharma. You show that you're really practicing. And if that's not happening, then it doesn't matter whether one is practicing Vipassana or Dzogchen, Mahamudra, Vajrayana, Theravada, Shamatha. It doesn't matter. If that's not happening, then the practice is not striking the target. Practice is striking the target. It may give you a lot of esoteric ideas and cool ideas about who you are and what your practice is and your lineage and how great your Lama is. All of that's good. But if it's not leading to an overall greater balance, a composure, and then out of that, as Atisha says in the seven-point mind training, a sense of good cheer. Because you're tapping into, you're not just coming to Blandville, you know, the, the, the land of gray, but you're tapping into your own inner resources. And they're always there. They're not waiting for a stimulus. They're not waiting for felicity. Your inner resources, your own Buddha nature, your substrate consciousness are already there. They're always there. And if you tap into them, then you maintain a greater continuity, not, not only of composure, but a sense of an ongoing flow of a sense of meaning, a sense of well-being, and you know you're on the path. So let's practice.